Over the last several weeks, we have rolled out uh, our new mission statement, which is that we exist to glorify the triune God by exalting Him, edifying and equipping His church, and evangelizing the world with His gospel. And we, as a church, believe that in order to accomplish this biblical mission statement, we must consciously and zealously hold firm to ten core values. These values must determine how we invest our time, our energy, our money, and our physical resources. Thus far, the core values we have covered are worshiping the triune God, you can see them behind me, Holy Spirit dependence, scripture saturated and spirit empowered prayer, preaching and teaching, biblical leadership, care, and evangelism. Today, we are going to cover the core value, discipleship. I aim to show us that discipleship is what God calls everyone to, and that the work of discipleship is what He calls all of His people to. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Discipleship is what God calls every human being to, and that the work of discipleship is what He calls all of His people to. Before we jump into our text, I do want to ask some questions that we should think about. Is discipleship on your mind? And I don't just mean the word, but the concept. Discipling, simply put, is helping somebody else follow Jesus better. That's not original to me, but it's very simple. Discipleship is doing an intentional act to somebody else whether for the first time that they follow Christ or if they are a follower of Christ, that they follow Jesus more closely, that they look more like Him. So is that concept on your mind? Is it what you think about when you wake up in the morning? When you're getting ready for your day? When you're getting your kids ready for school? When you're driving in the car on your way to work or on the way to church? When you're parking your car? I was challenged by this one. You're parking your car. I think what my, the brother who brought that up meant is that you park in a place that's strategic to serve others, not yourself. When you come to Sunday Morning Discipleship Institute, if you come, men's, women's Bible study, youth group, or the main Sunday service, are you actively thinking about how you can be a part of helping somebody else follow Jesus better and how others here can help you follow Jesus better? Is discipleship a part of our daily and weekly life as a church? Discipleship is what God is calling us all to, both personally and corporately. He calls the world first and foremost to follow His Son, and that those who do, to call and to teach others to follow His Son. This is not complicated, but for sinners it's complicated to do. So we need grace. So let's read this morning. We're going to uh, be spending our time in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you could turn with me in your Bibles there to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we'll work through that, and then we'll read verses 7 through 16. Verses 1 through 6. A lot of pages turning. I'll give you a quick second. All right. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner, live your life in such a way, worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I'm going to argue that calling is a call to discipleship. 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is talking to the disciples in the church at Ephesus. They have already heard the call of the gospel. They have responded in saving faith and have committed themselves to following Jesus in this new community called the church. He has spent the last three chapters of Ephesians unpacking the realities of the gospel. That God has chosen them, bought them by His Son, lavished His love upon them, sealed them, marked them with His Holy Spirit all to His glory. He has rescued them from being dead in sin, rescued them from being enslaved to the world, their flesh and the devil, and rescued them from His wrath. Chapter 2. He has saved them by grace, through faith, alone. And even their faith in Him is a gift. And not only that, God is not just in the business of saving individuals, but a people that those individuals make up. And not just a people, here you go, John LaRusso, but peoples from all over the globe, from every nation, tribe, and language. He has removed, in so doing that, the hostility between Israel the first people he chose to work with, and the nations, and between the nations and other nations, if they are in Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 19-22, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, talking to Gentiles, those of us who are not Israel, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, a place where God dwells. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice the two things there. We are a temple now where God dwells, but then we're also in the process of being built into a better temple where God dwells together. God is in the business of calling people from all over the world from following their sin, following other sinners, and following the father of all sinners, the devil, to following his son, making them disciples of Jesus, who conform their values, their thoughts, their actions, their lives to be like the one they follow. Jesus, total surrender of heart and obedience to their king. So first I just want to ask this, this morning, are you a disciple? Have you? repented of your sins, and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone? Do you follow Him? You might be saying, Chris, we've read this text. We're going to read verses 7 through 16, and the word disciple doesn't show up. As a matter of fact, it's not even in the whole book of Ephesians. So why are you using it? Well, I want to show you that. Turn with me briefly to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, the classic text, the Great Commission that was referenced earlier. Um, by Brother Paul Younger in, in the video. And I want to show you that this text mirrors our own. We're going to read verses 18 through 20, and then I'm going to flip back. I'm going to flip back to Ephesians 4, and I'm going to show this to you. But just follow along with me in Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Flip back with me to Ephesians 4. In our text, we saw several parallels. Paul writes in verse 4 that there is, or sorry, verse 5 rather, that this is the call, the hope that these Ephesians were called to and that they responded to. Look at verse 5. There is one Lord. Well, what does is, what is Matthew write? Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You just teach disciples to obey all that I've commanded them. Jesus is Lord. Paul's saying, You've been called to one Lord. Then he says, in our text, verse 5, one faith, meaning one system of doctrine, really the, the gospel itself. We're calling people to follow a Savior, one who came to bleed and die for their sins. One faith, make disciples. One baptism, it says in our text, verse 5. What does Jesus command the disciples to do with the new, the, the new disciples that they make? To what? To baptize them. Then he says, in our text, one Father, one Spirit. And Jesus is mentioned already. Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then he says, there's one God. In Matthew, does he say, baptize them in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? The name, singular, one divine being. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, teaching them to obey all. Well, that's what verses 7 through 16 is all about. Teaching and equipping disciples. Do you see the parallel? What Paul is really talking about here in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, now that he's unpacked the gospel to us in chapters 1 through 3, what God has done for us in Christ, this now is what our life looks like on a regular basis as Christians. Discipleship. So are you a disciple? Have you heard the call of the gospel? Have you seen and submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Have you believed in his work alone on the cross to forgive you of your sins? And then have you been baptized as a disciple in his example? And if you, if you have been, and if you've not been, please talk to us. We'd love to talk to you about how you can know your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ today. If you claim to be a disciple, does that impact your daily life? Look at what Paul writes in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, I plead with you to walk, to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What's that call? To follow this one Lord. To believe this one faith. To do so by this one Holy Spirit. To be baptized in His name. Are you living a life of obedience and conformity to Jesus Christ. And obviously all of us want to say yes, and all of us can't say perfectly. And we want to go, how? How do we do that? Well, how we're supposed to live worthy of that call, how are we as individual disciples to learn how to live worthy of that call? The answer is together. That's what the thrust of the rest of the passage is all about. We do this together. Verses uh, 2 through 3 actually imply that. He says, well, first of all, the first you in verse 1 is plural. But then verse 2, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity. You can't do that by yourself. You do that together. And often, whenever these character traits pop up, it means someone's annoying you. Someone's letting you down. 
I don't go to that church. People there are annoying. Please tell me when you find the church that there aren't annoying people that let you down. Don't go there. You'll screw it up. All right. I want to jump into that how because the rest of the passage really unpacks that together. So let's read verses 7 through 16 now together. But grace. Isn't that amazing? He calls us to something and then immediately what what, what does he say? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That's a little parenthesis explaining verse 7, or sorry, rather verse 8, where we are going to talk about that. But now he continues his thought. It says in verse 7, grace was given to each one of us with the measure of Christ's gift. Let's look what he gave. Look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, the holy ones, that's just a believer, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Really, that last phrase is discipleship. Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How are we to faithfully disciple one another here at Cedar Crest? I love when this happens as a preacher. I got five Ps. This is wonderful. We need to know the power, the people, the process, the posture, and the purpose of discipleship. We're going to walk through those now together. First and foremost in our passage and all throughout, you see the power of discipleship. The power of discipleship, beginning in verse 7. Again, the very first word that jumps out is grace. We are all called to walk worthy of our call, to maintain unity together, and that's hard. Look at verse 7. Grace was given to the elite among us. No, to each of us. Every individual in this room has not only been saved by grace, been made a disciple by grace, but you are given grace daily, constantly to disciple each other and to be discipled. And it's according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's abundant and it's purposeful. Jesus does not do anything haphazardly, let alone equip his bride whom he loves. No one in this room, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, can claim that God has not given you what you need to be discipled and to disciple. We need to acknowledge that God is generous. I want to, because this is important, to see the power very specifically. I want to focus on the gracious gift giver and his gifts in verses 8 through uh, 11a. Paul wants us to know some things about Jesus and how he came to give us grace 
in the form of gifts. First and foremost, in verse 8, you see his sovereignty. His sovereignty. Verse 8. He says, therefore it says, when he ascended, quoting, I believe, Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, a position of authority, he led a host of captives, meaning he defeated enemies. And who was that? Whose head did he crush? Satan's. Led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then at the, uh, um, at the end of verse 10, it says, he ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That means reign over all things. That's his sovereignty. Jesus Christ has defeated his enemies and he is king and he as a good king gives gifts to his people powerfully to enable them to follow him. Paul wants us to get that. But then in verses 9 through 10, he wants us to understand something else of how Jesus Christ came to be able to give us these gifts. Is he king? Absolutely. Has he been king before the foundation of the world in the sense that he's ruled over all? Yes. But has he always been the Messiah king? No. He had to, he had to accomplish something in order to be raised to sit at God's right hand as the son of David, the Messiah. Look at verse 9. Paul says, In saying he ascended, he went up. What does that mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended. Do you want to know the point that Paul is trying to make here? If a normal human being ascends to power, well, that makes sense to us. They start pretty lowly. I have a two and a half month old. She can't really do anything for herself. She ain't king or queen of anybody. Okay? It would make sense that if one day she's the CEO of a big company and fills her dad's retirement fund, that'd be wonderful, okay? I would say my daughter ascended to that position, right? But when you talk about God ascending, what does that mean he first had to do? Descend. You know, that's Philippians 2, 5 through 11, talking about humility and service to one another, that the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself in the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men humbled himself to the point of what? Death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has what? Highly exalted him. Literal Greek, super duper exalted. So that every knee, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You know what Paul is trying to communicate here? The fact that Jesus is on high as the God-man, son of David, giving us gifts, meant he had to go real low to get him. Your Savior bled and died to give you gifts to disciple one another. So the next time we spurn that, think about the cost. He's not just God. He's the God-man. He came, he lived, he bled, he died, he rose, he ascended, and now he gives gifts, gives gifts to his people. Do you acknowledge that the same gospel that justifies you in God's eyes is the same gospel that sanctifies you, that makes you righteous? He declared you righteous based on Jesus' death on the cross and his life, but he also now makes you righteous in your experience. If God is gracious and powerful enough in Christ to cleanse and forgive us of all of our sins, to make us disciples, he is certainly powerful and gracious enough in Christ to give us all things in him to follow him. So what has he given us, right? I've kind of built this up. 
And we'd probably think, oh man, what are the gifts he gave to men? Maybe he's given us wisdom like Solomon or hermeneutical insight. I'm going to be able to understand everything the Bible says. Magical patience. I'm just going to smile when my kids are driving me nuts. Theological acumen. Good feelings. There's a little, little bit of a in our fleshly bubbles. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. He gave us people. The people of discipleship. This is amazing. These are the gifts that Jesus gives us as the ascended Messiah. People. First, I'm going to break these into two categories to understand them. You have foundational leadership. These are, these are the disciplers, the foundational leadership. First, you have the apostles. These are eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. They laid the foundational doctrine, settled early disputes, planted many churches, and were responsible for the widespread of Christianity all over the known world. Guys like Peter to the Jews and Paul to the, to the Gentiles. And these gifts, these are gifts because in Christ's physical absence, he worked through these men who continued to do his work and give his people his word. The apostles' teaching, which we have for us, is still that gift to build up and be the foundation of each church. Prophets. There's a lot of debate over this one, and a sermon like this is not a lot of time to jump into it. Many believe it's New Testament prophets who spoke particular, particularly relevant messages to the churches or individuals during key historical moments of the church's infancy. What do I mean by that? While the church was, didn't have the whole New Testament written, there's, this is brand new to a lot of people who were, didn't grow up as Jews. 1 Corinthians 14, you see people giving prophecies. Acts 11, Acts 15, Acts 21. Prophets coming to do specific things. Like when Paul was told that he would be bound when he went to Jerusalem. These are prophets that are ministering to the church in a foundational way. I do not believe they're around today. There's debate over this, but we're going to leave it right there. Okay? That's the foundational leadership. Then you have the equipping leadership. That's what I'm calling it. These are people I still believe exist today, functioning in the church that are active gifts. You have evangelists. These are those who are especially gifted in sharing and preaching, and I also believe training others to share the gospel message. Likely, most likely, these are missionaries and church planters in particular that are starting new churches in areas that don't have the gospel. Then you have shepherds, and some take this as shepherd teachers, one office, I think there's a better argument to be made for shepherds and teachers, that shepherds certainly teach, but there are some teachers who don't shepherd with the authority of an elder. Okay, You have pastors and elders who are shepherding God's flock, nurturing, ministering, guiding, confronting, restoring, all of those things and leading the church in discipleship. Then you have teachers who are especially gifted at teaching the Bible. They're instructing us how we're to live, how we're to, how we're to do more discipleship, how we're to get along in our daily. And this could be Sunday school teachers. This could be you teaching your children in a smaller context. This could be the preacher, a, a discipleship institute teacher, a men's Bible, a women's Bible study teacher. Teachers. But I want to ask, do you notice at this point how important teaching is to discipleship? Christ has gifted his church with men and women who teach unfaith to God's people. Matthew 28, what does it say? And teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Discipleship starts with the leadership. It starts, and for, or I should say, flows from the pulpit down to the people, 
from God, not that the men up here are, are higher than the people, but the, the message is we all sit under it, but it must not stop there. Not only has God gifted his church with what I call foundational leadership and equipping leadership, every single disciple must be about discipling. They are gifts. Look, look, look at with me at, the, at verse 11 again. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to do everything in ministry. That's not what it says. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And I love how he doesn't even qualify. He doesn't say the ministry. He just says ministry. And it's work. Meaning all kinds of ministry, which is doing spiritual good to somebody else. That's all it is. And he's a, God's gifted his church with leadership to people, the whole body, all of us, on this floor, the balcony, watching at home, to equip us to do the work of ministry. So if you're a disciple of Jesus in this room, do you view yourself as a discipler? Word didn't like that word. I had to teach it, add it to its dictionary. But discipler is a thing. At least now it is. Okay? Do you view yourself as someone who needs to disciple others? It is not a profession, brothers and sisters. It's not. It is something that we all are to do in the body of Christ. So do you acknowledge that when you neglect to disciple others, we in this room are neglected? Do you get that? Like when you fail to, to show up here with the mindset of, I'm not just going to consume, I'm going to give, you are harming every single one of us in this room. All of us. We're going to get to particular gifts in a little bit, but I just want to focus on every single disciple of Jesus Christ is a disciple or for and on behalf of Jesus Christ. Parents, in the home, this starts with you. Fathers, in particular, called to lead the home. You're called to lead your family. We have books out there for you to take and hymnals to lead family worship. This is so important. Like, your children's understanding of the gospel should reflect your own because you're the one primarily teaching it to them and as the church, we're reinforcing it. Grandparents, we just had a wonderful seminar from what I've heard. I'm not a grandparent, so I, didn't, I wasn't there, but I heard from those who were. It was fantastic about being intentionally involved in your grandkids' lives. My aunt and uncle... Um, their one son has rejected the faith, is an atheist, and he hates God. He doesn't even allow his parents to pray in his house for their food. And she is so burdened for her two little grandchildren who live out in uh, Oregon who will never, ever hear the gospel from her parents. And even if you have wonderful children who are ministering to your grandchildren, be involved. This is a generational thing. Pass the baton on. I found out, I learned more from my grandmother's life, from her obituary, than I ever did from her. That's a shame. Don't let that be the case. Don't let that be the case. Men in this room, we're called to lead our families and lead the way in this. Ministry to men, our men's ministry, we have a list this long of those who want to be mentored and only this long of those willing to mentor. Please, please, we're begging you, get involved. As a matter of fact, in a in, uh, in December, we saw it advertised the men's breakfast right after that for like 25 minutes at the most, an info meeting on what it means to be a mentor. And after church the next day, you can sign up in the lobby. Come in here. It, it's, it's not as complicated as you think. It's spending time with somebody, loving them, and, and sharing with them truth and listening. It's a lot of listening. Women, I talked to Jane 
And they have a lot of mentoring going on, but what they need is somebody to take up the mantle of coordinating the, 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 the mentoring ministry among the women. It doesn't mean you're, you, you're, you have a PhD in mentoring. It means you're willing to pair people. That's really all it is. The women have a desperate need for this. We have a, a, a need for discipleship in our church. So I challenge you, are you doing it in the home? Are you doing it in the church? And are you doing it in the world? Let's move on. So that's the disciplers. It, it starts from the leadership and flows down to every single disciple. Who are the discipled? Every single disciple. <laughs> it's, it's the same thing. Uh, just a few points in our passage. Verse 1, Paul says, I urge you, plural, all of you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. If, you're, if you've obeyed the call to follow Jesus, you're, you need to be discipled. It says grace, verse 7, was given to each one of us. Gifts were given to help all of us in our walk. Verse 12a, the saints. Verse 12b, the body. Verse 13a, until we all attain. Verse 14a, so that we, Paul includes himself, may no longer be children. Verse 15b, we are to grow up. And verse 16, the whole body. No matter who you are, your background, your education, your aptitude for reading and learning, how you've done in the world, you are Jesus' target for discipleship. I am Jesus' target for discipleship. No one is ever too mature or immature for discipleship. You should have somebody pouring into you and you should be pouring into somebody else. And by the way, a great point Mark Dever makes in his book on discipling. Discipleship does not... You don't need to be more mature than somebody to, to disciple them. Do you know that? You might, for an official mentoring relationship, it's set up that way. But as far as like learning and being discipled to follow Jesus more closely, do you know how many times I've sat across from teenagers who just by their response, what they're telling me, what they're thinking, have rebuked my own way of thinking and corrected me to follow Christ more, more closely? Discipleship is a 360 thing in Jesus' church. All of us need to be discipled. Okay. Every Christian needs to be discipled. Every disciple needs to be discipled. We get it. What does this look like? Just stating what you're thinking. Okay. There are some overarching principles and a few specifics in our text, and then we'll reference a few others. So let's look now at the process of discipleship. Okay. We're all involved in it together. What's the process? How does this, how does this work? Verse, verse 12, 15, and 16 point to this. What do disciple makers do Generally, we've already referenced this, but first and foremost, it starts with equipping. What does it mean to equip? It's to adequately prepare someone for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to minister, to do spiritual good for somebody else. The reason why we gather week in and week out and throughout the week is to be equipping each other to better minister to each other. It's how a body works. This means that when we show up here, brothers and sisters, we come here eager to learn, eager to be taught and trained, eager to have conversations with one another outside of the formal gathering time. This means coming to the service, coming to Discipleship Institute in Sunday School. It means coming on time. Sorry. Show up on time. Be a part. Show up intentionally ready to sit down and prepare your mind and your heart. Come in with the purpose to be equipped. And what does that ministry look like? What are we being equipped for? I love the word the Apostle Paul chooses. It's building. It's building. It's a parallel in Greek to the work of ministry. We are building a holy temple. 
shoring up our building, completing this building where God dwells. It has the idea of a process and a progress towards a finished product. Discipleship is laying brick by brick by brick by brick by brick. Sometimes we think of changing somebody or changing ourselves like we think of how houses are built today and most of them, they, they uh, get a foundation ready and the truck shows up, beep, 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 boop, pours, done. It's not how it works. Discipleship is a masonry project, brick by brick, block by block, and sometimes the evil one comes and he kicks a few blocks off and you've got to put, put them back on. See, that's, that's why it's important that we're doing this daily, weekly, because one day you blink and your kids are out of your house. It's day by day, month by month, year by year. It is building up the body of Christ. Belonging to a church, brothers and sisters, is not belonging to a social club where we pay our dues and receive our benefits and make all kinds of connections that benefit us. Belonging to a church is being a part of a family that mutually depends on one another for communal growth. This also means that your engagement with other Christians is often, sorry, if this means that your engagement with other Christians is often received as destructive or tearing down, you're probably not doing ministry. I believe that if we consciously, by the Spirit's help, showed up every week, throughout the week, and thought, how can I build up the people that I encounter, discipleship would just happen. It would just happen. And what are the nuts and bolts then? So we're equipped to build up. How do we build? What are we, what are we talking about? Well, there are several things in this text and, if, and several from a few others. How do disciple makers do it? Not generally now, but specifically. Well, you see in, in verse 11, there's preaching and teaching involved. Okay, that, that's a big one. But then in verse 15a, look at, look at how Paul describes what the majority of us are, are doing on a regular basis. It's very simple. Look at verse 15. Instead of believing lies and being deceived, which all of us are prone to, it says in verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. We're going to get to that love part in a little bit. But really, Ephesians keeps it very simple. All of us are called to this level of discipleship. Telling the truth. This could be, in, this could be um, uh, interpreted as confessing truth, confessing the reality of the gospel. It means that when I encounter you and you encounter me, we are telling the truth to one another. And we're applying that truth to each other's lives about our beliefs, our attitudes, our actions. Do you realize discipleship is really just being willing to share gospel truth with your brothers and sisters? We complicate it. In that sense, it's, it's simple. It takes courage. But then there's spiritual gifts, not mentioned in this passage, but in places like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, that it says in Romans 12:4, the members of the body don't have all the same, don't, do not all have the same function. Some have the gift of prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, contribution, leadership, mercy. Okay, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, it adds wisdom, faith, healing, working miracles, discernment, tongues, interpretation of tongues. All of these gifts are distributed to God's people as He sees fit, and we discern by His help and by the help of others what ours are, and then we get involved in it. So, so take, take heart. Not all of us are called to minister and disciple in the same way, in the same capacity. All discipling is, to come back to it, is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. That's how Mark Dever 
describes it. So when you, with the gift of service, serve someone well, you are showing them how Jesus served. When you, with the gift of discernment, are demonstrating the mind of our Lord, you're showing them how Jesus thinks. When you show an immense amount of faith, you are showing others and encouraging them to trust Jesus more. When you show the gift of mercy, you are showing the rest of us how we're to have compassion on the rest of the body. Be faithful with what Jesus has given you. So that's kind of the process, kind of the nuts and bolts. I want to zone in here now on the posture, because this is so important. This is, this is probably one of the most important things in this passage. 1 Corinthians 13 shows this in such an explicit way, but it comes up in our text as well. What does Paul say after 1 Corinthians 12? These are the spiritual gifts that exist, and you're to use them. What does he say in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3? If I do not have what? Love. What is it? Yeah, a, a, a clanging gong. It's worth it it, it, it. it doesn't matter. He says, I can, have the, I can have the tongue of angels and understand all mysteries. But if I have not love, it's nothing. We must have a certain posture, a certain attitude of heart that we approach ministry to others with. And I want to walk through what that attitude is here in Ephesians. First and foremost, it's a zeal for the gospel first in our own lives. Verse 1 of chapter 4, we are all urged to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, including we are to walk in a manner, sorry, we are to disciple in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We must have a passion for our own Christ-likeness before we start pointing out the Christ-likeness or lack thereof in others, which leads to verse 2, humility. We must do this with humility. That's the posture Paul brings up in verse 2 of chapter 4. Do you believe that you need the body to disciple you? When you disciple others, do you keep in mind that you were once just as immature or might even be so at that moment? Do you remember who you would be without Christ? I, I, I hear, thankfully not a lot in this church, but just generally the older generation complaining about the younger and the question I respond with is, who was responsible to teach this generation how to live? Right? Like, Someone had to teach you, so teach them. And I've, I've also heard this, and I'm, I'm going to give a specific example. I've asked men in our church and women who are of the older generations when I was youth pastor to teach or something. I've heard this response more than once. Oh, they don't want to hear from me. Number one, they need to hear from you. Second, you, you'd, be, you'd be surprised. Do you want to know, even while I was youth pastor, who the majority of my students' favorite teacher was? Pastor Felty, dead serious. They loved him. He engaged them. He taught them truth, and he met them on their level. And he's a lot older than them. Okay, it, age is not a factor except for what you bring to the table. We need you, older generation. We need you, and younger generation. We need to be mindful of that. Then, verse two, gentleness. This has to do in the in the connection with the language. Humility is a posture of heart. Gentleness is how you carry that posture of heart with you. It's not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance when you engage others. It's being tender. And it also means you realize it's not about you, so you don't take things personally. So I ask you, are you gentle in your approach to people? I need continual growth in this area. Jesus, our Lord, 
who was very truthful, is very truthful, he's truth itself, he does not crush a bruised reed or put out a smoldering wick. How did he approach Peter who denied him three times? Think about that. This is especially need, needed when confronting sin. Galatians 6.1 says, You who are spiritual, restore them in the spirit of gentleness. Second, chapter, verse 2 of, of chapter 4, patience. This has the idea of remaining tranquil while awaiting an outcome. Patience is, is possible when we know the end result will come. When we know God has saved this person, he saved me, he's working on me, he's working on them, we're going to get there, then we can disciple with patience. We can exhort with patience, teach with patience, serve with patience, rebuke with patience. That often change never happens overnight. And it means we rejoice in the progress we see in each other. Next, unity. This is important verses 3 through 6, and then in verse 13a of our text. God has unified us. He doesn't say eager to achieve unity, but to maintain that unity. To remember that when we engage each other in discipleship, we're remembering, I'm engaging a part of my own body. I, 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 I think about this, right? Like, this is for sake of illustration. If I got a bunch of thorns in my hand, and they weren't coming out, I wouldn't just try to get them out by any means necessary. I'll just, let's, let's try a saw, or a hammer and just start beating the thorns out because this is attached to the rest of me and when I hit this, it hurts. You've got to understand that when you come at somebody else who's in the body of Christ and you bruise them, you're bruising us. We're one. You have to do this in the spirit of unity and desiring to stay together that when you confront somebody, your aim is that they repent and come back to the church, not leave. And then the big one, Paul says, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is what? Love. I love what one preacher says. Words are very important. The text does not say, okay, in verse 15, rather, speaking the truth is love. Speaking the truth in love. Truth, speaking truth is not equal love. Love is not an action. Reject that. Love is proved by actions, but love is a motive behind an action. Meaning that we speaking truth as we disciple each other, it's in love. And love means that we say what we say. We serve how we serve. We give how we give. We do what we do because we want to see that brother or sister progress towards Christ-likeness. That's why we do it. Love is essential. Paul says, I've already referenced it, 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, if you don't have love, you have nothing. So I want to just ask some questions directly from 1 Corinthians 13 that defines love. Are you, and I'm talking to myself too, are you patient and kind when you disciple? Do you envy somebody or boast about yourself when you disciple? Are you arrogant or are you rude when you disciple? Do you insist on your own way when you disciple? You must conform to my standards. Are you irritable and resentful? Ugh, they didn't show up for the second time. Man, I'm not getting together with them again. Do you rejoice in wrongdoing when they tell you a sin they're involved in and you're afraid that they won't like you if you, if you tell them the truth? Do you, do you oh, that, that's okay. Do you rejoice in the truth? Do you withstand all things? Do you believe God can do all things in their life? Do you have hope and endurance with what God is doing in their life? 
Do you want to see people progress towards the goal of discipleship? That's the motive, and that is so key. I think if we, as a church, talking to myself, would go before God and beg Him to give us love for each other, discipleship would just happen. We wouldn't have to get so crazy about all the nuts and bolts, which leads finally to the last point, the purpose of discipleship. Why do we disciple? What is our goal and what is the ultimate goal? Well, we see in verse 1, it's to live more and more in step with the gospel. And Paul is going to spend chapters 4 through 6 expounding what it means to more faithfully follow Jesus. There's our, there's our roadmap. That's what we're trying to point people towards. Husbands, wives, fathers, slaves, masters, it's all there. Verse 3, we want to grow more and more unified as a body. But really, the ultimate goal in discipleship is Christ-likeness. A disciple... A disciple is one who follows another and mirrors their life off of that person. He is the standard. He is the new man. He is the one all of us are being conformed to. The disciple comes like his teacher. I'm going to read verses 12 through 16. Notice how many times Jesus is mentioned. It says, uh, To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith, that's a goal, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we, we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and, dis, and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Jesus is the standard. The goal is maturity, is Christ-likeness, and a few things that he points out. For the sake of time, we'll do this quickly. Maturity and doctrine. Jesus himself is truth. We must believe truth if we're to be like him. He says, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To no longer be like children that follow myths about who Jesus is and who he isn't. We must teach because by default, we all are prone to believe lies. And even as Christians, that's why parenting is so important. That's why children's ministry and student ministry that gives rich, robust truth to our children is so essential. That's why adult ministry that continues to further all of our knowledge of Jesus and love for him is key. But then that leads to character. When you have knowledge of the Son of God and you grow up into maturity that equals his stature, that's not just talking about this. That's talking about what's in your heart and what you do with your hands. The goal is to be like Jesus, to think like him, feel like him, and do things like him. That's the goal. And finally, in closing, the ultimate goal of all discipleship is the glory of God. Ephesians 1, 3-14, it's very clear, three times, God has chosen us, God has redeemed us. God has sealed us to the praise of His glorious grace. That's why we do everything that we do. When the world and the spiritual realm, both wicked and righteous, the angels and the demons, see people who, like you and me who were once narcissistic self-worshippers investing our time in love to help others follow the one true God of the universe, God gets the glory for that. God gets the glory for that. So I want to ask, it's a time of quiet meditation before the Lord. How are we doing, brothers and sisters? And if you feel like, I'm doing pretty good, then I ask you, who are you teaching so that they can do better as well?
We're going to pray and ask God how he would have us get involved in discipleship here at the church and how, who he would have us disciple, especially if we're not.